I love the idea of a portfolio. I get worried in HR when we come in with recipes. Here's the 10 steps to heaven. I don't, maybe I don't want to go to heaven. Well, I hope I do. Uh, I'd rather give you a menu. What are you trying to accomplish? What's meaningful to you? Here then are a set of actions you can choose from. Final caveat on that. The best test for me of leadership, and I love simplicity in the world of complexity. Does someone leave an interaction with you as a leader feeling better or worse about themselves? That comes because you create value for them. Welcome back, everyone, to the Geeks, Geezers, and Googleization Show, the home of Googleization Nation, where we talk with HR and business thought leaders about the crazy shift going on all around us and explore the disruptive convergence of technology, business, and people. Here are your hosts, Ira Wolf and Jason Cochran. Hey, welcome back, everyone, to another special episode of our March Madness series of Google is of geeks, geezers, and Googleization. Uh, I'm Ira Wolf, and thank you for being part of Googleization Nation. And I'm Jason Cochran. If you think this is just another podcast, think again. We're the leading voice on the future of work that's confronting business leaders and people today. Our goal is to bring you ways to reimagine tomorrow and explore the convergence of business, technology, and people. This episode of Geek Skeezers and Googleization is sponsored by our partner, Y Institute, your personal and professional GPS for a meaningful life and purpose-filled career. You'll hear more about Y Operating System and Y Institute later in the show. We are so excited today to have Dave Ulrich back for today's conversation. Dave has been aptly described as the father of modern HR, and you'll You'll, you'll certainly hear why in just a few minutes. Uh, but let me start here. Not only do we love learning from Dave and hearing from Dave, but so does the HR and business community. But on one of Dave's last visits to the Geek Skeezers and Googleization show, hard to believe it's almost uh, 15, 16 months, he delivered one of the most memorable moments in Geek Skeezers and Googleization history. So let me just play a short segment of that to give you a taste of what you're about to hear. Jason, that was, and Dave will be joining us shortly. That is still, it brings a smile to our face every time I, I see that. And we're going to, I'm sure, get a lot more of that. And, and hopefully we'll have some uh, new memorable clips. Just about two hours ago, Dave released his new newsletter about human capital framework. 
And in it, there was a one line, and I can't wait to dig in uh, with Dave about this. He said, sustaining desired changes is not a new challenge. Totally agree with that. But ever more important in a rapidly changing world. Well, I'm going to flip that a little bit because we're not only living in a rapidly changing world, we're living in a constantly changing world. And how we sustain changes in a constantly changing world, I, well, I hope Dave has some, will bring us some clarity on that. Uh, and just to, to add a little icing on that cake, our friend John Sinai, uh, who was with us just a few weeks ago with, uh, again, one of our, our best ever episodes about the future of work, he just this morning posted something that we are not just living in a world of digital transformation, but digital acceleration. And there's no coming back from that. So we got a lot to talk about. Uh, but we, before we bring on Dave, it's time for our perfect labor storm segment. So this is where on each episode, we focus on a disruptive, surprising, or worrisome trend that we believe you should know. Here's today's perfect labor storm. According to Forbes, many CEOs are very concerned with managing changing business models, not just in terms of how they do business, but in terms of how the world, including clients, investors, employees, prospects, perceive their business. McKinsey reported that 84% of executives tout innovation, which is widely, which is what we're going to be talking about today. How do we innovate uh, HR? Uh, they, they touted innovation as critical to the future success of their organizations, yet only 6% of these same executives were satisfied with their efforts to develop a sustainable, innovative culture. And then according to a recent survey from the conference board, which Dave has worked with and collaborated with on his human capability research, attracting and retaining talent topped the list of CEOs internal concerns for their companies in 2023. We've got a lot to discuss with Dave uh, here shortly, and I'm, I'm going to keep my part short, but just to, to add on to the narrative here, Ira, it feels like we've lived multiple lifetimes since Dave was with us about 16 months ago, and especially with the proliferation of AI now in our daily lives. In fact, there are now some humanless fast food restaurants that are being piloted around the country. There's an autonomous Taco Bell in Minnesota and an autonomous McDonald's in Colorado. And it reminds me of a recent interview I saw with Sam Altman the founder of OpenAI, which is the parent company of ChatGPT. And the visibly concerned journalist point blank asked Sam if AI was going to eliminate millions of jobs. Here was Sam's response. He said, yes, it is. But then he followed up and he said, it's going to create newer, better jobs instead. But while that's great for the future, it's got a smack dab in the middle of major disruption right now. And we just saw it happen again Yesterday, as Amazon just announced 9,000 more layoffs this week. And it's a reminder that fundamentally work is all about creating and delivering value for the person in the organization. And this is why Dave's research on human capability is so timely, as we've got to level up in the skills that humans uniquely bring to the table to create new value as more of the repetitive and mundane tasks and jobs are going to be offloaded to robots and AI. And so having said all that, it's the perfect time to welcome our special honored guest today, the father of modern HR, Dave Oreck. What a delight. 
What are the lights? I love the applause. I feel like I'm at the University of Michigan football stadium. Uh, first of all, I've got to say two things, and then I know we'll get into it. I'm the father of this family. So uh, my 94-year-old mother, and uh, we all relate to that, and uh, they treat me with the uh, deference that I hope everybody else's kids treat them with. And second, I've got to do the test. Can you guys do the dance? So let's see. Okay. Good practicing. Okay. There we go. There we go. We have passed the human capability, talent, organizational leadership. Okay. I've been I'm, practicing that for 15 months because I uh, blew it the last time. <laughs> okay. Well, I uh, I know that's really stupid and silly, but it's memorable. We need people, organization, leadership. Okay. I'm all yours. What a great introduction. Thank you. Well, Dave, thank you so much for being with us. And we talked a lot about human capability because that's what the, the latest research that you came out with is helping us move into this area. So maybe a first question to start with is, we probably have a lot of listeners that are like, what is the definition of human capability? So let's start there. You know, it's really fun. If, you, if you've ever been to Disney, you go to the Star Wars ride and all the stars are flashing at you. I think in the HR people and organization field, and I love the quote of CEOs, talent. Look at all the initiatives that you've had on your show. Great resignation, quiet quitting, skill-based organization, hybrid work. It's like all these stars are flashing. I get overwhelmed. I think every science builds when you take complexity and make it simple. My PhD, and Jason, I don't remember what your PhD dissertation was on, but mine was on taxonomy. And anyone who knows what that is should get an extra bonus in heaven because it's, it's really silly stuff. But it's saying, take that complexity and make it simple. Of all of those people and organization initiatives that CEOs and others talk about, they fall into four buckets. Do we have the right people? Do we have the right organization? Do we have the right leadership? And then do we have the right HR systems? That's human capability. Talent, organization, leadership, and HR. And so it's like the four food groups. When I go to that McDonald's, there's really a McDonald's one food group, fat, but and I've been there many times, <laughs> but you've got the four food groups. Are you eating the four food groups? And out of that come dozens of diets and, and tools. We need in our field simplicity. So all those stars flashing at me, and I've used about three metaphors now, all those flashing stars at Disney fall into three buckets, four buckets, people, talent, organization, leadership, and HR. And with that, Dave, with, with the research that you did with the conference board and the human capability research and laying out this framework and model to help leaders understand what is human capability and how do we build it out for the future, what were some of the, the major findings that came Here's out of your research? Here's a major question. Jason, you just won the lottery. Poor Ivory, he didn't. But you did. You got $20 million US. What's the question you're going to be asked? What's your portfolio of investments? Are you going to do bonds? Are you going to do equities? Uh, I'd encourage you not to do Bitcoin right now. But, but you know, are you going to do real estate? Are you going to do art? We need a portfolio. We need to have and say, of all the things I could invest in around talent, organization, leadership, and HR, which is going to meet my needs the best? That's the question. And generally that's answered either by the consultant who sold you the latest program, let's do hybrid work, or by somebody else that you met on a plane. Oh, that's the best practice. Here's our solution. Of all those things I could do in talent, organization, leadership, and HR, which will create the most value for my customers? Which will create the most value for my investors? And so the question we're interested in is, you won the lottery, you got all the money, what's your goal? Long-term stability, good, do bonds. 
what's your goal? I want to take my 20 million and be a hundred million. Then I won't have to do geeks and geezers. Well, I would still do geeks and geezers because I'm so committed to it. Well, then you're going to have to take more risk. And so I think in HR, we need to have a logic of a portfolio management to say, where should I then invest in talent, organization, leadership, and HR so that our customers get value, so that our investors get value? We did research on that. We've done survey research called the guidance system. We've done uh, AI research at where we worked with Amazon. And I know they've just done some, some currency layoffs where we did machine learning. And I could talk more about that. We basically scraped public documents. We looked at the SEC reports of 7,000 companies. And we said, where are you investing in talent, organization, leadership, and HR so that you have the most impact? That's the question we're trying to answer. Now, I'm going to be honest. We don't have a great, perfect answer yet. That's almost a holy grail. <laughs> I mean, if you knew with certainty where you should invest your, your, your earnings or what diet you should do, we'd all do it. But at least we're able to ask the right question. HR is not about what you do in HR. It's about the value that you create for your stakeholders. Dave, I'm going to go back to where, where my head is, is, is a few things that you've been talking about. Uh, with certainty. And, and I can't remember the phrase you used, but you talked about certainty in one of the LinkedIn posts yesterday. And, you know, I'm on the other, I don't know, I'm on the other side. I think we, we both have the same vision, but we're, we're at least talking to our public, our audience. Uh, you're talking about certainty. I'm talking about uncertainty. And we have this addiction to certainty. We talked to Johnson and I a few weeks ago, we got these familiarity brains or machines called our brains. Uh, and when you're, and going back to the quote that you had, sustaining desire changes is not a new challenge, but more importantly, uh, but it's more important in a rapidly changing world. But if we're not living in just a rapidly changing world, which means that we can sort of predict what the next step is, if we're in a constantly involving world, uh, a VUCA world, a volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous, and there's all these stars, there's all these moving pieces around, and the landscape keeps changing. I guess one of the dangers I see when we talk about a framework is that people think that if we follow this framework and strategy, then we've we have a solution. And so we're sort of trying to create the design solutions, offer some level of predictability. But the, the, the instant we say that the environment could have changed, the circumstance could have changed. I'm not sure there's an answer, but I'm just trying to get your take uh, and maybe just as a warning to people that, hey, if we follow Dave's framework step by step, we're good. You know, I love the question because you're getting me to think deeper about our framework. I think there are some principles that are timeless. You care for your people. In fact, sometimes I look at the HR people, oh, we should care for our people. That's a new idea. And I'm going, uh, no, I, I think that's been around a while. So there's timeless and timely. And you've got to navigate, I think we've got to navigate that paradox. If everything is timeless, we apply old frameworks to new problems. If everything is timeless or timely, we keep changing. We never get continuity. How do you navigate that inherent tension? This is what I think. But you've got to avoid not changing because you've got to change as quickly as the world changes or you go broke. I've worked with a lot of companies that didn't change and the world changed and they no longer exist. But on the other hand, you've got to do the timeless stuff. Let me give an example of what I believe. Finding certainty in uncertainty. 
Four. Do you know what your grandkids are going to study at school? Uh, well, well, one is studying. She's a, she's a is senior she? in college. The other one's three and one. And the answer is probably no. Do you know who your kids or grandkids might form long-term relationships with? Probably not. Where are they going to live? I don't know. What job will they have? There's a lot of things about my kids I don't know. But what is it I do know for certainty that's timeless? Remember, timeless and timely. I'm going to bet, Ira, you will love your kids and grandkids. Yeah. I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. And I'm going to bet they'll test that. My kids have tested me and our grandkids are getting to the age where they'll test me. That's timeless. What's timely is how do you then adjust to that changing world? And how do I navigate that paradox? So one of the statements I love in the spirit of uncertainty, what am I certain about? Are we going to have a recession or inflation? I don't know. Will we have more AI or not? I don't know. Will we have more digital or will we do hybrid work remote or will we be in person? I don't know exactly. But here's what I know. What are my core values? What's timeless? I think that's a great question leaders should ask themselves. For me, I face that. I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know when I, I'm hoping it's not 16 months before I get to talk to you again. I don't know when you'll have the when I'll have that privilege of joining you. I know that I'm going to learn. Are companies I work with going to succeed or fail? I don't know. Am I going to have articles at work or don't? I don't know. Uncertainty that's so rampant, I'll learn. And for me, the other principle is to create value. To me, that's the certainty and uncertainty. Now, the timeliness stuff says, what am I going to have to do to adapt? I don't know about some of the folks that are listening. Two and a half years ago, I never would have done this. People have told me, Dave, you have a face for radio. Uh, and I do. Uh, I've had to learn how to do this kind of thing and not to feel embarrassed that I raise my hands and I move my arms and I look stupid. I've discovered people don't mind me looking stupid and I don't look at myself. Uh, I'm being timely. My kids, my grandkids, they want to connect through things like Instagram and Twitter and I'm having to learn new stuff. Chat GPT. Guess what? I'm going to have to learn that. Open AI. I'm going to have to learn that. That's timely. But there's both certainty, timeless, and, and adaptiveness that's timely. And navigating that tension is such a critical issue for people and organizations. Dave, out of curiosity, you brought up ChatGPT. So let's open that door real quick. Just out of curiosity, what are some ways that you might be using ChatGPT in your business and the work that you I do? I love it. You know, in our business, we love to, I love to build on the past. I don't like to say, I've got a new idea nobody's ever thought of. Well, that's kind of stupid. A lot of smarter people than me have thought of this idea. What I love about ChatGPT is I don't have to do literature reviews. I can type in, I experimented with ChatGPT, and I hope everybody has. Take a topic where you know something. Jason, you're a psychologist. Take a topic where you're an expert. I did ChatGPT, write a 200-word essay about the future of HR. And it produced one within whatever, 20 seconds. And I read it. I thought, holy smokes, that's really good. And I got scared. And then I started thinking, hold it. What ChatGP does as a methodology is to get behind it. It looks at the data that's in the field. And it puts those words together in creative ways. 
but it can't create the future. And so I said, okay, Dave, why don't you write your answer? I love what ChatGPT said. That's 1.0. That's what's been done. What I think ChatGPT does is open those new jobs, and you alluded to it with Sam. How do you think about the future? How do I become like Ira and Jason? I don't, you don't want to come on this show and just say, I'm going to report what I've always done. No, if you're going to do that, literature review, use ChatGPT. I'm going to create what hasn't been done. And someday in the future, ChatGPT will take that new stuff and make it part of their cadre of data. I think ChatGPT makes the human capability, the people side, even more critical to create what hasn't been done. I totally agree with you, Dave. And I actually stumped ChatGPT the other day. To your point, I asked it, how would you go about solving the teacher shortage crisis? All it did was just blink at me. <laughs> it had no response. It didn't have any ideas. And that's where we come in as humans to, to deliver that value. So funneling that into HR, maybe more specifically. So from how you're using it personally for lit reviews, what do you see some of the major applications, particularly in human capability or HR being? In well, let's go, let's go through some of the things. You've got to do a job specification to hire people. This is what it means to be a software engineer. Got it. That's probably 60 to 70%. You've got to do the basics if you're going to, I love it. Students come to me and say, what do you want? I want to be rich. I want to create an app that will change the world. And I want to be as rich as Elon Musk or someone else. Dave, what do you suggest? And my comment is learn how to code. And they go, I don't want to learn how to code. I want to be a billionaire. Well, you got to do the basics. I think ChatGPT will help identify the basics for staffing, for training, for compensation, job descriptions. Let's get the basics out. And then that 20 to 30%, what's unique? And, and I, you said it so well in this VUCA world, however you want to define that. What's unique in this world that ChatGPT is just going to blink at you because they don't know yet? I think HR can use ChatGPT. It's not new. Again, I think we all think, oh, the world is brand new. Remember a number of years ago when we went to service centers, call centers. Oh, we're going to do it with HR. We're, yeah, we're going to change jobs. We're going to change jobs. My mom, oh, I got to show again because I have deep respect for my dear mom. I got to show. My mom sold world book encyclopedias to help me pay for college. You know what? That was a marvelous thing to do. I am getting emotional. That was such a sweet gesture. We don't have world book encyclopedias any day. We have Google. We now have chat GPT. We're going to have new technology all the time. And I think learning to adjust to that timely in a timeless way becomes what HR should be doing. Yeah, one article, and it might have come from uh, the conference board. You talked about aligning, and I'm looking at the image here, aligning HR department structure to business strategy, which is what this is about. You, you, the, basically, it's a Jahari window, and you talk about business business centralized and business decentralized. It got me thinking about when we're talking about remote work, hybrid work, in office work. So when everybody showed up at the office, business was centralized and so was HR. It seems that business is becoming decentralized, but HR is still this single entity. Um, it, it's almost business, HR is centralized while business is becoming decentralized and we're trying to fix that problem. I'm gonna take that in two ways. First of all, everybody's excited about where you're where you gonna work, remote or remote versus in-person. How are you gonna work face-to-face -face versus digital? 
this is an example. We're in three different places. We're face to face. I feel a kinship with you, Jason. You've been so gracious to respond to comments on LinkedIn. I feel like I know who you are and we actually connect. I think those are the wrong questions. I think those are timely questions that are not timeless. The timeless question is, why are you working and what are you working on? Will your work create value for a customer? That's a more important question. Will this podcast, and I hope it's a great podcast, give someone who listens to it, either now or in the future, an idea that will help them be successful? If so, we've done a good job today. So for me, the issue is not hybrid work. I think hybrid work is going to become a standard. Companies will set policies two days in the office, three days in the office, this job more than less. That's not where and how doesn't matter. It's the why and the what. And those for me are timeless that are going to get adapted. Now, what does that mean for an HR function? I think the HR function should align with the business function. I've just had some calls recently about people building archetypes of how HR is organized. They get complicated and they're not helpful. If your business is centralized and you have one product or service around the world, could be a small company, could be a government agency, could be McDonald's, your HR system should be the same. McDonald's hiring, staffing, training should be consistent because I, as a customer, want to have an experience in Paris, in Japan, in Baltimore. When I drive my three hours, I want in Saratoga, I want to go to McDonald's and have that experience. Centralize HR. On the other hand, if you're Tata, if you're Berkshire Hathaway, they're a holding company. They have a whole mix of businesses. I don't want my seized chocolate experience at Berkshire Hathaway to be the same as their real estate company. I want my C's people, and Berkshire owns both of those, to be different than my real estate company. 20% of companies, rough estimate, centralized, same standards, 10 to 20% holding companies, decentralized. The combination is the fascinating part, that chart you've got. Most large companies are diversified, integrated. They're a mix. They're centralized and decentralized. So should HR be. That's where you have specialists in staffing, training, development, and generalists who apply that knowledge to their unique requirement. And that's the logic that we see for HR. People are putting old new wine in old bottles. They're renaming these roles. But every HR organization has specialists, staffing, training, development, et cetera, and generalists who adapt that knowledge to their business. And they come together to make that work. So do you see a, a trend uh, and again, maybe, and, and we work with primarily small, medium-sized companies, uh, and you're talking a lot about enterprise companies, global companies in that. Do you do you see a trend yeah. that HR is becoming more flexible with the policies? Because in order to be, is despite the fact that you can have policies and whether it's compensation and benefits or administration, uh, whatever, or, or how you recruit or how you retain, you, you try to have this universal culture, but in a global company, even in a, in a domestic company, even in the US, is having the same culture policies in Man New York, in Manhattan, New York City, and Des Moines, Iowa, and Norman, Oklahoma, doesn't work. And, and I still go back to the challenge is people think, look at centralized, we have a policy in place, but their, their audience, what value they provide is going to be perceived differently in each location. Great comment. You know, I think we have flexible policies, personalized actions. The flexible policy, we teach people correct principles. 
one of the great leaders said, I teach people correct principles, they govern themselves. So here's the principle. We're going to pay for performance. In New York, that's going to be different than Des Moines. It's going to be different at C's than it is at, at, a, at, a, at a real estate company. The principle is similar. The practice is personalized. I think one of the trends we see coming out of COVID is personalization. We have three kids. They each dealt with COVID very, very differently. One daughter quit her job and stayed home and homeschooled her kids. Another one had a very traditional relationship. He went to work every day. His wife stayed home. Another one, they did a mix. They both took jobs half time so that they could manage. I think we have flexible principles and policies. And then I think we personalize those according to the needs. And I think we're going to see an increase in personalization. What works for you, given the principles that we're going to try to live? I'll give an example of that. And it's interesting. Again, I come out of the HR legacy. We care about our people. Well, one of the things that we're going to discover is caring is not entitlement. I see some people saying out of COVID, I can work wherever I want, whenever I want, however I want. No, that's not really true. You can work wherever you want. We have flexible policies, but to personalize it, you've got to create value for the customer. And if you're not, we're going to put some constraints on you. Navigating that tension, and I think the world is full of tension. Navigating that tension is what good leadership is all about. Hey, Dave, we're going to take a short break, but we've had a number of comments from apparently a long-term acquaintance of you, Tom Great to see you, Dave. Uh, going back to the Quaker Oats days. So uh, he says. Uh, Speaking of a business that doesn't exist anymore, <laughs> they've moved businesses over and over. Anyway, yeah. thank you. And, and by the way, he did give a, a reference is that William Buffett's holding company, since you brought that up not unknowingly, that they do own WorldBook, which is majorly a digital form. You'll, you have to check with uh, Tom. We can, Or if you're listening there, uh, we'll make sure that we put the, the, uh, the reference to that. Uh, where that is. But we're going to take a really quick break. You've been listening to Dave Ulrich on the Geek Skeezers and Googleization show. Uh, we've been talking about a human capability, uh, future of work, human capital framework. Uh, we will be right back. For most of us, change is freaking terrifying. And unfortunately, there's no app to adapt. That might change in the not so distant future. But for now, we're on our own. That means we can either accept our default future or reimagine our tomorrow. For those of you who choose default, good luck. Just remember, there's no pause button for change. You can't turn back the clock. And there's no get out of jail free card in this age of perpetual uncertainty. Like it or not, change will happen all around us. And that change is not becoming just more disruptive and frequent, but volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous, or VUCA. Fortunately, you can make change work for you and turn it into your personal and competitive advantage. Reimagine your future to one in which you're living with purpose, you're happy, and you're growing, thriving, and flourishing. If you're ready to rewrite your next life chapter and regain control of your destiny in this never-normal world, your journey starts here. Contact the leader in adaptability and making change work for you, your team, and your organization. Ira S. Wolf, adaptability.expert.
There's a certain kind of coach who believes what we believe, who leads people to greatness, who gets people unstuck, who unlocks all of your passion. A coach who helps people discover what drives them to tap into their superpowers. Then knowing your why is the first step to untap potential, to focus, to breakthroughs. A coach who's looking for a better way. Are you that coach? And welcome back, everybody, to Geek Skeezers Googleization. We are honored to have the one and only father of modern HR with us today, Dave Oreck. We're redefining human capability based off of his research. And perfect time to be talking about this as the world is constantly changing in terms of how we create value. So, Dave, a question as we dive deeper into your framework on human capability and the research. You list out that there are six actions for creating value. Um can we walk through all six of those or part of those six that you think are the most important as some key takeaways for our listeners today? You know, let me start with an assumption that hits me as I'm listening to this show. I love the title. How did you guys come up with geeks and geezers? How did you come up with that title? Is one of you a geek and the other a geezer or are you both both? I'm the geezer. Ira's the geek. <laughs> And you wouldn't expect that. I have four kids under the age of nine, so I'm usually in bed by eight o'clock at night. Yeah, <laughs> I get it. I get it. And up at two. Um, look at the logic between geeks and geezers. To me, the assumption for creating value is to navigate paradox. Geezers is kind of implicitly old. That's looking back in that clip that you just did. I've got to respect the past. I remember listening. I had the privilege to hear Peter Drucker once. And he said, people love all the new ideas in management. The greatest management in the history of mankind was the pyramids. And we've made no progress. Look at the pyramids. They brought together thousands of people, obviously horrible setting. You talk about, you know, anyway, but they organized. Geeks means, or geezers means you respect the past. Geezers means that's timeless. Ira, that's where we were. But then you got to adapt to the geeks. Ira's got to listen to Jason. Jason has some, and some of what Jason says is just stupid, but that's okay too. I, by the way, I probably shouldn't have said it that way. <laughs> I, I think it. that navigation of past and future, geeks and geezers, long-term, short-term, inside, outside, the ability to navigate tension and paradox, that's where value comes from. And that's where if we get locked into one size fits all, we lose because the market's changed and we didn't fit. It sounds like World Book, and I appreciate Tom for bringing me up to date. I'm going to need to tell my 93-year-old mom if she learned how to do digital, she could still sell World Book and, uh, and get me my next job. But are we adapting and are we stable? That's the interesting contradiction is we need to be stable about those timeless principles. We need to adapt about the local conditions. So uh, we can talk about some of the actions for doing that. But to me, the first action is a mindset of navigating inherent tensions and watching out that we don't get locked into one size fits all all the time. I appreciate that, Dave, because I, I think many times I hear, and I'm curious if you do too, and Ira as well, that there's skepticism about the future. Like, are we able to adapt to these changes? Like things are happening too quickly. And many times in the talks that I give, I bring up the pyramids and show a picture of the pyramids, or I have some pictures of combs that were made out of woolly mammoth bones. 
fine tooth combs. And I'm like, <laughs> if human beings are able to do these fascinating things millennia ago, I'm pretty sure we can figure out how to successfully work in flexible work environments. I'm pretty sure we can tackle upskilling and reskilling people for the skills for jobs that are needed in the future. And I'm curious if if you kind of have I, that I, same perspective. You know, one of the people I really like, and I hope you, if you can get him on your show, is Marty Seligman, the father of positive psychology. He studied what was called, and I know he's out of Pennsylvania, your area, but learned help, helplessness. And he studied that, that we get locked into old patterns. His new studies are around defined hopefulness. And his view is exactly where yours is, Jason, that in a world of change, we can have hope. We can have efficacy. If I work hard, I can do it. We can have optimism. I don't look back. A lot of our field looks back. Be resilient. Look back. I love to look forward. What's next? And then we can have innovativeness. What's a fresh idea? Again, we talked about chat GPT. It helps us look back. I hope we look forward with optimism, with hope about what that future might mean. And in the process to learn from failure. We are going to make mistakes in a world of uncertainty. I'm certain I'll make a mistake. In fact, if, I often tell leaders, if you're not making a mistake, you're not doing the right stuff. Think big, test small, fail fast, learn always. Think big. What's the opportunity? Test small. Go try something. Experiment. We just saw some great work by Adam Grant. Leaders should be experimenting with data. Test small. Fail fast. Learn always. I think that mindset is what helps leaders begin to move to this new stage. Now, we're talking about how do you create value? You got to think outside in. Value is not what we do. It's what somebody gets because of what we do. Let me say that again. That's a big assumption. Value is not what I do. If you give your partner a gift, who defines the value of the gift? I used to think I got the gift. So I gave my wife, we've been married for a long time, picture of her here, tickets to sporting events. And her comment after a while was, enjoy yourself. <laughs> that wasn't valuable to her. By the way, I got to confess, one of the best gifts I ever gave her when we had young kids at home, Jason, in your world, and I don't know your relationship, but you're busy, you're stressed. Christmas is a demanding time around gifts and children. If you celebrate Christmas or Hanukkah or whatever, Ramadan is coming. My gift to my wife, we had three kids in school. From Christmas Day to New Year's Day, I took our three kids away. Now, that sounds really weird. What's the gift you gave your wife she liked the most? You left. <laughs> but she said, Dave, I got a week where I'd go to California, I'd go to a dude ranch, and I got to connect with my kids, which was valuable for me, and she got to connect with herself. I think that's the first premise. And that goes back to hybrid work. I don't care where you work. I don't care how you work. I care that your work is creating value for someone else. And that's why I think that what's the first action of value creation? Who's the receiver of the work I do? Who's the receiver of the work I do? And how will my work help them? I've talked too much about that, but uh, that's the logic. And then what is it I do that does or doesn't work? Experiment. I don't know if either of you have ever had a failure. You're kidding. A, You're kidding, right, Dave? <laughs> oh, I could paper my wall. I still get it. I've been around a long time. I sent an article to a journal recently and they said, how dare you offend us by sending us this horrible article? I mean, it wasn't quite that bad, but it felt that bad. You know what? Failure is an opportunity to learn. That's Carol Dweck, growth mindset. Learn, run into it, 
And I hope as leaders, we test small, we run into it and we learn and we keep that mindset of learning so that we move forward in the things that we do. Um, what else do we do to create value? Anyway, I'm going to stop with that. You measure it, you track it, you document it. I love the idea of a portfolio. I get worried in HR when we come in with recipes. Here's the 10 steps to heaven. I don't, maybe I don't want to go to heaven. Well, I hope I do. Uh, I'd rather give you a menu. What are you trying to accomplish? What's meaningful to you? Here then are a set of actions you can choose from. Final caveat on that. The best test for me of leadership, and I love simplicity in the world of complexity. Does someone leave an interaction with you as a leader feeling better or worse about themselves? That comes because you create value for them. I got to say, I've had shows with you and, and our interactions, even through internet. And I hope people will follow me and comment on LinkedIn. Jason and Ira, I've never left an interaction with either of you or the two of you not feeling better about myself. That's good leadership. And that can happen personally. It can happen remotely. It can happen through a LinkedIn comment. When we get that value creation for someone else in our head, that's where we lead well. That's where we create benefit to someone else. And in a world of uncertainty, Ira, if I'm creating value for someone else and I'm certain about that process, I don't know how I'm going to do it. But that's the agenda that I hope we have certainty about. I, I love, I mean, you captured so many themes there, Dave. I'm going to unpack it. One is simplicity it, it is, you know, ultimately that's, you know, when we talk about VUCA and everyone talks about complexity, how do we solve, how do we deal with uncertainty and complexity? It's through simplicity. I mean, it's really breaking it down and doing what you can, not trying to solve this complex problem. It's really isolating that. Uh, the growth mindset is is huge. I just wrote a chapter in a, uh, a new book that'll be coming out soon. Uh, and it's about self-empowerment. And, you know, everybody- you mean, your, Yours got accepted and mine got rejected. Uh, I feel- I, I, well, feel I, I, I won't tell you that. how many got rejected before that got accepted. But, <laughs> uh, you know, but part of part of that is is that, you know, it was the, do I talk about purpose? Do I talk about values? Do I talk about skills? What, what, what do I talk about? And ultimately it all boils down to growth mindset. Um, because, and, and, you know, we're of similar age, um, I, <laughs> give, give or take a few. Um, and, you know, but one of the things is that it's not that I'm hopeful for the future. It, it's not that I hope the future is good. Is being hopeful is different than hoping. And, and I think that's where, well, I hope this works out. I hope I win the lottery. I hope I, hope, I, I, hope I don't see this. Is being hopeful uh, I think is just intrinsic in growth mindset because people are saying, when are you going to retire? And, you know, here I am creating my third career, uh, you know, in my seventies, you know, figuring out that, you know, Hey, we're going to monetize this podcast, but everybody goes, Oh, you have a podcast. You know, and, and well, are you doing it for fun is no, it's a career. Uh, we're doing that. Um, you know, we're building, you know, helping people understand the value of growth mindset. Um, the geek skeezers, by the way, just going back, it actually was the title of my book in 2007, 2008 was Geeks, Geezers and Googleization. Uh, Warren Bennis had wrote, written one, Geeks and Geezers, prior to that. But ultimately, it was it, it was about the four at the time, four generations. Now we got five or six, you know, in the workforce. But ultimately, it was that Geeks and Geezers, there were there were millennial geezers. <laughs> there were millennials that really couldn't get out of their own way. Uh, and there were there were geezers 
who were starting new careers and continuing to grow. So, and, and the Googleization was really the convergence of the technology to business and the technology. And it really wasn't based on generations. I mean, it was, I you know, it. so everybody wanted it. a stereotype. And so there was a whole, there was, there was a whole story with that. But ultimately the theme that runs through all that is growth mindset. I don't know how anything changes if I you totally don't have agree. a growth mindset. The, the word I put behind growth mindset is personalization. What your growth mindset looks like at age 70, you're creating a business. I know a geek with four kids under eight who at age 70 may not be creating a business. That I'm sorry, that was funny, Jason. You didn't get it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and 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 you know what? That's okay. Ira, that works for you. I'm in that same, I'm not quite in that age group yet, but I'm doing research that is just crazy. I'm doing Indiana Jones where he walked across that cavern. I'm taking a step where I don't know where I'm going. And for me, that's fun. My friends are going, Dave, you're nuts. Retire already. Go to Florida, golf, go to Sarasota, visit with older women. Visit, oh, I shouldn't have said it that way. Visit with, that's going to get me. But I have a, I have a wife. I'm hey, hey your wife's to. calling, Dave. Yeah, I know, I know. I said that because your mother is down there. So I'll go down and take care of your mother. But no, personalization. I live for for those those Indiana Jones moments. That's I've dated myself as well with the movie. But when you walk into a future that you don't know, I love that. But not everybody does. That's where I've got to be careful. I don't want to impose my agenda personalized on somebody else's. I have a friend who just decided to retire. What are you going to do? I'm going to pick up golf. I'm going to travel. And they laid out a whole series of very meaningful activities, but they're not mine. I think the growth mindset leads us to personalize the relationship. And I think we'll see more of that as we go forward. We have flexible policies, personalized applications. And as we navigate that paradox between flexible policies, personalized applications, the geeks and the goozers, the geeks and the goozers <laughs> come together, um, uh, the geezers. And uh, anyway, I, I love those ideas. I, I And I love your idea about opti hope. Again, I'm going to go back to Marty Seligman, efficacy. If I do A, B may happen. Optimism. I see what's possible. I don't get locked into the past. And inventiveness. I can create a new solution that ChatGPT didn't give me. Efficacy, optimism, inventiveness. That's for me what leads me to continually recreate. And again, I want to be really careful. I don't want to impose that on someone else. But if you want to be part of this new world, whether you're a geek, a geezer, that's the kind of work that I hope we do. And I hope we can institutionalize it. I'll go back, Jason. I'll loop back to your comment. So how do we build HR systems, staffing, training, development? you got to do those things that enables that kind of personal creativity. I hope we can find ways to do it. I'm trying to explore it. That's our agenda. I was just going to comment real quick. You mentioned the word institutionalization, Dave. And I think that's so important because I think we've got to re reimagine what we're teaching in schools as well, K through 12, because so much of it was convergent thinking, standardized tests. And what we're seeing now that drives value is divergent thinking, thinking in right those now. very creative ways. And so hopefully that's another direction that we can take well, also and, to help and, equip ourselves for the future. And that's the work that I think Carol Dweck and others have done brilliantly. When your kids come home from school, what'd you learn today? What went well? What'd you learn from what didn't go well? And to get that, encourage that, not what are your grades? I mean, that's the outcome. What are you learning? What worked? What didn't? And to, and to encourage that sense of divergent creative thinking. I think that's so helpful. 
Dave, unfortunately, we're coming up toward the end. Uh, we've had a lot of chat going on, a lot of active people. Um, but there's a favorite question we always like to ask uh, toward the end. And that is, was there something we should have asked you that we didn't? You know, I've been asking this lately and I love it. I'd love to have each of you think about this because I think it wraps up our discussion. What was the best year of your life if you're a geek or a geezer? And people go, wow, I was just on the call with somebody. I was 18 and I left home. I graduated from college. I got married. I had kids. Somebody else I just talked to said my divorce got finalized. Uh, we all have our list. Let me tell you what I hope the list is. The best year of my life is the next one. The best year of my life is what's to come. That's what I hope we ask ourselves. Is the best yet ahead? because of the things you guys are creating. And I thank you. I thank you. I thank you. I thank you for books, for ideas, for podcasts, but even more for modeling that the best year of our life, if we're in our forties, fifties, sixties, seventies, or even 99, the best year of our life is the next one. That's my hope. Love it, Dave. And, and with that, that's a perfect segue into the lightning round. I can't remember if, if we did this the last time we had you on the show, and I promise it's going to be quick and painless, but we just want to get to know you a little bit better on a personal level and help the listeners do the same. So I'm going to ask you three or four questions here so that we can get to know you a little bit more on a personal level. Let's start with this one. If there's one person in the history of the world that you could spend the day with, who would it be? By the way, that hits me as very emotional. My wife. Love it. I, I mean... I can go back in history with, you know, our faith tradition, we're Christian, Jesus Christ, the great leaders. But let me be honest, if I had a choice, I'd spend it with my wife. I love it. Perfect answer. And if she's watching too, just got some extra brownie points. Well, you. by the way, it's really cool. I didn't have her picture on this shelf about six months ago. It wasn't here when we did our show last time. She put her picture up and said, look at those icons you trust. I need to be up there. <laughs> and so, uh, but... I got to be honest, uh, if I had a choice, I'd spend a day with, I'd spend a day, a week, a month, a year, and eternity with my wife. Love it. And for those who are watching the show, you can see that Dave does have the picture of his wife. It is the first one on the dresser. And then Martin Luther King Jr., many of the other historical figures come after his wife. So living it out there, Dave. How about this one? If you could choose any superpower in the world, what superpower would you choose? To love to love, to find out how do I love people who are like me and even more, how do I love people who are not like me? Well, and I think anyone who knows you knows that you live that out and that you're a wonderful example of that. So I love that. Um, how about this one? Let's, let's find out what some of your musical tastes are. What would be your favorite band or musical artist? I got to be honest. I've been, I'm active in church. I've quit singing because when I sing loud, everyone around me starts to laugh. And I've discovered that music is not my gift. I love to listen to all kinds of music, but I'm learning that my ability in anything I said about music, you should run the other way. So I just, I have an eclectic taste in music, but that is not my gift. When I sing and the louder I sing, the more people around me laugh. <laughs> well, you just need different context, maybe karaoke. Sometime I've tried. It doesn't work. It doesn't, doesn't work. work. And how about this with last one? What's maybe one of the best pieces of advice that you ever received? 
there's a, a passage in scripture that I like in patience, possess ye your souls, slow down. I'm aggressive. I mean, uh, Ivor, you're on your third career. I'm assuming we have type A behaviors. Slow down, slow down, be patient. Now, again, that's the paradox. So I'm going to ask you one. What do you yeah. hope your listeners leave this, not my episode, but your show with? What's a hope you have? We talked about hope. What's each of one of your hopes people leave this show with? What's the value you're creating for them? Yeah, I hope the big thing they take away from this is learned hopefulness. Um, that a lot of the doom and gloom, it's about mindset shift. The future doesn't care about your feelings. It is going to change. But what can change is how we approach it, the mindsets that we have. And we are stepping into a future where we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Cancer may be gone with the help of artificial intelligence. A lot of these wretched diseases that have taken so many people that we love from us too soon, we may be able to finally get past some of those hurdles. And so to me, from what you shared today, Dave, so much hope, so much love and appreciation, not only for where we've been, but where we're going and excitement for that. How about you, Ira? Yeah, it's a great question. That's just usually our takeaway session, uh, Jason. Uh, you know, ultimately hopeful. I mean, to be more hopeful, to have that growth mindset, to see some opportunities that they might not have seen before. Um, but also, uh, and Dave, I'm going to put it in, the, in your perspective, is how could they, is everyone has a value. I mean, everyone has value and th that's the hopefulness. How can you add, you know, you, you are valuable to somebody and to recognize that and and to personalize that. And it doesn't have to be solving cancer or, or you know, clean water or, or, or fixing climate change or solving the problems with climate change. It could be taking care, you know, being able to take care of a, a child or, or a loved one or a parent or, or doing something. I mean, we all have these grand purposes that we need to solve. And sometimes it's just that personal touch, simplicity, one-on-one. -on -one. You know, I love that. I, I And again, I shouldn't comment because I know our time is running, but I think in the diversity field, we get complex with systems and processes. It starts for me, number one, everyone has something to offer. Everyone has something to offer. And the job of a leader is to unlock and empower that offering, whatever it is, big, small, long-term, short-term. That is such a power. Ira, thank you for reminding me of that. Everyone has something to offer, whatever it is. And then our job or a job of leaders, empower it, discover it, let people live according to their offering. Thank you. What a delightful conversation. Yeah. I feel better about myself. Yeah. And, and everyone has a why. Everybody has a why, and it's a matter of helping unlock it. And um, hopefully, we we help people do that today. Uh, and really appreciate it. Dave. It's great to see you. It's always great. I know we have a lot of digital conversations, uh, but it's great to have a live conversation. And uh, remote remote can work. So I appreciate you taking the time to be with us. Hopefully, we can get you back before fifteen months again. I'm sure we're going to have continue robust conversations. And we want to thank all our listeners for joining us today. Absolutely. Dave, before we let you go, what are some ways that folks can get in touch with you, RBL Group, learn more about the research you're doing on human capability? You know, I started, I've written a lot of books and Ira, you've written a lot of books. Books today are kind of looking out, they're almost like GPT can write the book. I'm on LinkedIn. I've discovered LinkedIn. I post every week on Tuesday and I, somebody said, who makes all those comments? I do. Uh, I spend an hour or two a day. I post what I love about LinkedIn. I got thinking about it. 
I love LinkedIn because it engages. It's not a TED talk. It's not a book that you put out there. People comment and I come back, Jason and Ira, you both made wonderful comments that teach me. So I'm on LinkedIn. We have websites, rbl.net. We have all those things, but I like the engagement that LinkedIn provides. Perfect. And just like Ira said, we're going to make sure it's not 15 months again in between conversations and staying in touch together. But thank you so much for coming on the show today, Dave, and helping us understand human capability and the heart of HR and where we're headed in the future. Wow. I wrote a novel over here, Ira, in terms of some of the key takeaways from Dave again. And there just was was so much. And obviously, he kind of pulled out some of the key takeaways from us before we, before we um, you know, segued here to the end. But a, another one that was really profound for me that gets at the, the crux of why businesses exist in the first place is value is not what we do. And this ties into the why that we talk about a lot of times in Simon Sinek's work on the golden circles. But value is not what we do, even though that's what most of us think of when we think about work. But it's about what's the value that it's providing for someone else. We're helping solve something for somebody. And if we can stay grounded in that concept and then build the business models around that timeless truth, that is what building an innovating culture is all about. It's about adapting and changing over time. Not doing the same things that you did 5, 10, 15 years ago, but evolving over time to deliver the value to solve those things for your customers and your stakeholders. And so for me, you know, the big one was, you know, with all the change that's going on, always lean into that and know that the more that you're focusing on that innovating culture, you're going to be able to survive more than likely with all the change that's going on because you're focused on the right thing, which is delivering value for others. I'll go back uh, to something he said, right? The day said right in the beginning when and was the difference to, to identify what's timeless and what's timely. And I think everything else funneled uh, down from that. Uh, you know, later we talked about being principle versus personalization. Uh, and, and that's, you know, what I, what I was trying to get at early, earlier in the show, talking about a framework that you need a framework, but if, if it's so structured, then it's not going to adapt to an ever changing, uh, environment to a never normal world, um, because it's that framework, you built that structure and that seemed to be, it worked in the past when, when we always had change, but it was much slower. Uh, and now it's just much more unpredictable. So how do we provide a framework and principles but also personalize it. Uh, I, I think he, it sort of slipped by at the end, but he talked about the difference between flexible work and the personalization of it. And just having a flexible policy doesn't necessarily mean that it's personalized for each person if it's too structured. So it's like putting structure around flexible. Yeah. Okay. And I think a perfect example of that's bereavement policies. Oh, absolutely. Right? Yeah, there's a long use list. case of that. Yep, for sure. Well, we uh, want to thank you, Googleization Nation, for tuning in today. Thank you to Dave Ulrich for joining us today. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, please do so. We're on all the major podcast platforms. We're also on YouTube. Uh, subscribe. Make sure that you don't miss any episodes. And if you like what you hear, go ahead and leave us a review and a rating on the shows. We would greatly appreciate it. But until next time, I'm Jason Cochran signing off. And I'm Ira Wolf. Special thanks to Y Institute for partnering with us and sponsoring this episode. Thank you for being part of Googleization Nation. And until next time, don't let the shift hit your plans. <laughs>